Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Jane Coaston and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Dara is back from the border. Yes, indeed. I was in uh, El Paso Juarez and Brownsville Matamoros last week That's uh, like... while you guys were in Seattle. Yeah. Seattle Not is... the same city, it turns out. <laughs> Seattle and El Paso Juarez. Yes, quite different, uh, although within the 100-mile border perimeter, nonetheless. Yes, indeed, uh, of yeah. USBP so, jurisdiction. Okay, so I, like most people, had been paying less attention to the border saga. I felt like the um, hubbub around uh, detention and stuff had waned somewhat. Um, And then I went to a housing conference, as is my want, and I heard um, Senator Shelley Moore Capito there uh, talking mostly about housing because it was a housing conference. Uh, But then she got a question about Something else, I actually didn't hear what the question was, Uh, but she pivoted to talking about the situation at the border, Mm -hmm. and she made the claim that despite all the contentiousness that had happened earlier in the summer, uh, that things are on track and that they are working and that crossings are now way, way, way down, and she hopes that they can get the legal changes that Republicans have been asking for for a long time, but that as far as she is concerned, like this border security approach is working and we are... Uh, it was it was, was interesting before because, or after Wednesday because Wednesday ah okay yeah because because Wednesday, last Wednesday was like a really substantial inflection point in the fight over the Trump administration's attempts to change asylum law because the Supreme Court allowed the regulation that the Trump administration implemented in July, tried to implement in July and like it got blocked by a lower court judge and now the Supreme Court is allowing it to go into effect that makes anybody who traveled through another country and didn't apply for and get denied asylum there, ineligible for asylum in the U.S., allows that to go into effect. So it it is not surprising to me that Senator Capito was, you know, kind of celebrating that uh, as as kind of the capstone victory. Uh, I do not know that that conversation would have gone exactly the same way had it happened on Tuesday when the injunction was in place throughout the country, because that's what happened last week, because asylum law changed like three times while I was at the border. But her claim, though, was that the crossings were down Mm -hmm. substantially, which I assume she didn't mean like the crossings fell a lot the previous afternoon. No, no, that's fair. Uh, So So, it was interesting to me because I rarely hear from uh, Trump-supporting politicians who are not trying to ape Donald Trump's mannerisms. So it was interesting, like, very calm, very professional presentation that also was trying to deliver a kind of message you don't, like, see that much from Trump, mm-hmm. which is, like, we did this thing and it was good and, like, it it worked and I'm right. claiming victory. Yes. Rather than, like, and now you're going to be killed by immigrants. Yes. Um, and, and, it, and it did make me think that, like, it's true that I have stopped hearing about this mm-hmm. from, like, normie Democrats, right? And, like, what what has ha- happened? So I do want to add one more little bit of political context, which might help explain the tone of that, which is that last week was also when the Trump administration was meeting with Mexico to kind of review the deal that they struck in early summer. And so there was definitely a certain incentive within any— part of the Republican Party that didn't want Trump to, like, go ape on tariffs with Mexico to emphasize that right now we don't need tariffs. Mexico is doing what we want. Things are okay. We don't need to continue to escalate. So I suspect that that was also Mm -hmm, part mm -hmm. of the message that Senator Capito had received. But the fact of the matter is that crossings really are substantially down from early this summer. That is not atypical for late summer versus early summer patterns. And so what's been a little bit difficult to tease out has been 
to what extent this is just people don't cross in the heat of summer because it's the heat of summer Mm -hmm. versus there is an actual change in the decision calculus being made by immigrants or people are still trying to come, but Mexico is successfully interdicting them. Um, interdicting? Interdicting. Interdicting. That Not was, indicting. Right. Um, but, but yes. Yeah, because so, that was my question yeah. is what is actually happening? Because I think that there's the conversation being had about people trying to be trying to seek asylum or people attempting to cross the border, but not really with the people attempting to do so. Mm -hmm. And I know there's been some really interesting reporting coming from Vice and elsewhere about the ramifications of Remain in Mexico. And we don't have to get into all of that, but I am No, we totally should get into it because this is like the fundamental question on the Central American asylum flow is the decision calculus um, of NBC reported a few months ago that an unnamed National Security Council staffer wrote in an email that like their intention was to confront asylum seekers with multiple unsolvable dilemmas that would, in collaboration, dissuade them from trying to seek asylum in the U.S. to begin with. And we don't have evidence that that is happening. What we do have is evidence that, A, Mexico is doing more of a job to try to interdict migrants who are coming through, certain, especially African asylum seekers who are being detained en masse in southern Mexico, B, that migrants who do get into the United States are being sent back to Mexico under the Remain in Mexico policy. Quick review, that's it came, it started going into effect in January. It's expanded across a lot of the border at this point. A, over 40,000 immigrants have or asylum seekers have been told to wait in Mexico. They're in the U.S. court system. They are brought back into the U.S. for their court dates. But between court dates, they're being told to stay in Mexico. The theory here is that this will prevent them from absconding into the U.S. um, and that, you know, waiting in Mexico, they'll either decide to just kind of settle there or they'll ultimately be returned, you know, or they'll ultimately, like, lose their asylum cases and be deported. So what are they doing in Mexico? <laughs> like, do they have— Good question. Do they, do they have permission to work in Mexico? Do they—are they in in refugee camps? Right. Like, what, um, where are they it, remaining? It varies across the border, and this is a lot of what I was reporting out last week. Um, the short answer is that work is not the problem, but housing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for a lot of people, especially families, that's much more important. Mm-hmm. Like— there were concerns early in the policy that Mexico was not giving returning asylum seekers a form of immigration status that would allow them to work. That does not appear that they appear to have fixed that. However, it doesn't prevent them from getting discriminated against by employers who are like, why would we hire you? You aren't going to stay here. Sure. And more importantly, they don't have housing. They don't have shelter capacity. There are some Existing shelters along the border, most of which were designed to deal with Mexican deportees Mm -hmm. and have now had to pivot. There is some effort to build uh, federal shelters, especially in Juarez, although those are supposed to be temporary shelters while immigrants like get enough money to start renting out apartments. There are asylum seekers who, you know, have kind of found the money to rent out apartments, especially there are a lot of Cubans along the Mexico side of the Texas-Mexico border. And those people, often because they have family in the United States, they're a little more likely to be able to afford it. But like there are over 10,000 between between people who have been returned and people who are still waiting to get admitted at the port of entry. Because if you'll recall from a bunch of stuff we were talking about last year, the U.S. is still limiting the number of asylum seekers who can present legally at ports of entry. So between those two, there are like between ten and 15,000 asylum seekers in Juarez right now. There is space in shelters for about 2,000 of them. Where the other people are is not known. Uh, some of them are in apartments. Some of them are probably on the street. Some of them have probably given up and gone home. But there isn't any kind of centralized effort to figure out where they are. And the U.S.'s position on this is that Mexico signed a piece of paper in January saying we're going to keep them keep asylum seekers safe. We're going to make sure they have access to work and housing. And therefore, it's Mexico's problem. The Mexican government is kind of, depending on who you ask, is doing what it can, maybe. Um, but no one on the Mexican side is saying that Mexico has the capacity or interest to guarantee housing or jobs to everybody. So where these people are is a kind of, it's not a legal limbo, but it's a practical limbo. And so there really are questions fundamentally about safety, which the the vice yeah. story, which we'll put in show notes, which has been great, 
uh, or it, it's, it's, it's part of a, a trend of really great reporting on the ramifications of this program, uh, is about a family who got returned to the U.S. and like kidnapped five hours later. Uh, that is not an uncommon story, to say the least, without kind of scooping the particulars of what I was at the border reporting. There are really, really serious safety concerns, not necessarily just because like, oh, it's Mexico, it's dangerous, but because there are opportunities presented by a group of people who are vulnerable, who aren't Mexican, who in some cases are obviously not Mexican, and who, you know, don't necessarily have the familiarity or comfort with police to report if anything happens to them. So I, I want to ask about some of the flows of of people, because initially we were talking about Central Americans mm -hmm. transiting through Mexico uh, because Mexico is adjacent to Central America as well as the United States. I saw over the summer uh, a considerable number of Congolese mm -hmm. people uh, making their way to Maine due to the strange happenstance of where uh, Congolese refugees have settled in, in the United States who had come through Mexico. And I'm hearing more about people from Cuba. Mm -hmm. And so, like, what what's what's going on? Like, what? how, how did that? Because uh, th this was really something that I think made me feel more uh, sympathetic to the Trumpy view of this, that there had become a sort of a, a global attractor yes. in, in Mexico that needed to be addressed somehow. Yeah. So... As the Central American refugee crisis has kind of continued apace, there have been a couple of other things that have changed. One is that Cubans, for the first time in half a century, haven't been able to benefit from wet foot, dry foot, which was the old policy that made it very, very easy to come to come to the U.S. without immigration status as a Cuban, but get legal immigration status right. very quickly. And so in the absence of that... Cubans have had to kind of sneak in like everybody else. Well, let's explain what foot dry foot just just so people people <laughs> people know what this means. Right. So the policy that was ended at the end of the Obama administration was if you were interdicted kind of on the water, right? If you were interdicted trying to get to Florida from Cuba because of course those two are only 90 miles apart, then you could be returned no problem. If you had set foot in the United States, you could just present yourself to an immigration office essentially and say, "Hi, I'm Cuban. I'm here now. I'd like my legal status, please." And you would get not only legal status but a kind of legal status that gave you a very expedited path to permanent residency. So it was a, you know, the theory here is that Cubans are kind of de facto refugees by mm -hmm. virtue of being under the Cuban government, which the U.S. doesn't like, obviously. Um, while the, the Obama administration was trying to normalize relations with Cuba, this was kind of one of its steps to normalizing relations was like, oh, now that we officially have taken the stance that Cuba is not the existential enemy of the United States, we're going to regularize this so that Cubans don't get special treatment. Mm -hmm. The Trump administration has not retained that stance toward Cuba as a government, but has retained the stance toward Cuban immigration to the United States. So it's reimposed a lot of the sanctions, therefore kind of creating a lot of economic turmoil in Cuba, and at the same time made it impossible for Cubans to just sail to Florida and get legal status. Which is an interesting dichotomy there, because that is a that's a break from... I mean, I'm aware that when I say things like that's a break from Bush era mm. policy, there are a host of like Trumpy conservatives who are like fantastic. And I feel like Matt and I have had conversations going back to like, you know, the shithole countries yeah. narrative of generally immigration policy as an extension of foreign policy has been if we don't like your government, we like your dissidents. Right. And we are going to encourage them to come here. Under which Trump, is, if we don't like your government, we, we just, don't like your people. Yeah, we just don't like anyone involved. And that's been an interesting element of this. We've talked on myriad occasions about like Cuban immigrants and kind of the idea within the United States and how they are perceived by the Republican Party. But this is an interesting shift to that story where it's sort of like, Remember that time that we talked about you and these halcyon ways as you were trying to flee communism for the wonders of American capitalism? Yeah, about that. Trump clearly remains uh, interested in the Cuban-American vote in Florida. Yes. right? And he courts it quite clearly. I mean, both in his foreign policy statements, but just like his basic politics. He like goes to the Cuban-American events and he delivers speeches about the evils of the Castros and the Maduro regime, stuff like that. And something that's interesting is that that community— has not had the juice 
or interest in using its juice to get this revisited, right? I mean, because the conventional understanding, I think it, it was always weird, right? Like at the height of the Cold War, it's not just that that people fleeing Cuba were treated more generously than people wanting to immigrate from Mexico. They were treated more generously than people who fled the Soviet Union. It didn't make any logical sense, but it was a, you know, it's politics, right? It's like there was a Cuban immigrant community. This is the thing that they wanted. Nobody was lobbying for unlimited Soviet immigration. So we didn't have that, right? And and it hasn't, it, Trump has not like broken with the Cuban emigre community as a political matter, but they also have not made this a topic that, you know, we are hearing about. Right. So it, they're going to Mexico. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if this changes, because frankly, the impression that I've gotten is that it takes a really long time for a population that was treated specially for a very long, for like, you know, again, half a century to internalize that that's not because they're existentially more worthy than anybody else, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so the Cuban asylum seeker community is, for example, a lot more likely to try to wait to cross into the U.S. at bridges and present for asylum rather than getting smuggled through. And that's actually been a bit of a frustration for them as, as they've seen that like that doesn't get them anything. Mm-hmm. There is a little more interest in like these rumors keep going around like, oh, Cubans are eligible for parole now, even when that's not the case. I saw a bunch of lawyers who had been who had flown from Miami to the El Paso Immigration Court because they'd been hired by U.S. relatives to work on these, you know, these cases of people who had been returned to Mexico. So I think it it's I think it's still an open question whether or not it sinks in that Cubans are being treated like everyone else and what that and Only after that sinks in, I think, is it going to see whether the politics change. But right. So the Cuban flow is is one thing that is going on. And the other factor that's going on, which is in some cases uh, the route that Cubans are taking, but, you know, they're, they're also kind of coming through other ways. But the countries of Brazil and Ecuador. Mm-hmm. have more generous visa policies than the rest of, you know, going going north from there. And so there's become a trend of what are called extracontinental aliens, people who are coming to one of those countries and then trekking all the way up through, for the record, uh, the border between Panama and Colombia does not have a an actual road there. It's like mm-hmm. a it's a biological barrier. And so they're trekking through jungle, uh, going up through Panama, through Costa Rica, and then up through the Northern Triangle to Mexico. And so that's where these the African asylum seekers are coming from, Congolese, Cameroonian, um, Eritrean to a certain extent, uh, as well as, for that matter, Indian asylum seekers, uh, which is a flow that hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention, but that it has kind of spiked in the last or was spiking on and off over the last few years. And so when the U.S. talks about a regional solution and when it, you know, starts talking about how Colombia has to be part of it and Panama has to be part of it and all of that jazz, it's trying to use this opportunity not only to kind of sign these agreements that you know, that have come up in the news with Northern Triangle countries to kind of capture asylum seekers along the route, but also to just kind of regionally strengthen borders between countries, not so that people can, you know, not enter those countries, but so they can't use those countries to transit through to the U.S. And so Mexico is the easiest country to pressure in some ways, because as we've discussed, the Mexico-Guatemala border is fairly narrow. So, like, it's easier to defend in theory than the Mexico-U.S. border. But There's also the fact that Mexico uh, is in some cases a stronger country than some of the Central American countries and has its own opinions about what it will and won't Mm -hmm. do and where the U.S. can and can't pressure it. And so that's kind of been the broader kind of political dynamic that's overlaid this ongoing migration flow. Okay, let's take a break and and talk talk about America. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. 
They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions. Best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I maybe I'm crazy, but I, I feel like there's a big like out of sight, out of mind yep. element to this, yeah. right? Yep. And that like whatever you make of the Remain in Mexico program, it has been strikingly successful at getting people to Not remain in, in Mexico. Yes. And that while there was if, – if you had a person on U.S. soil and she was in a dingy looking cell – or tent somewhere or under a highway overpass and had some sad kids with them, there would be like all these reporters and members of Congress and this is not who we are. And like it was a huge thing. And people were sincerely upset. I mean, I know I know some conservatives will look at some of this stuff and like they're rolling their eyes and it's virtue signaling. But like lots of people I know were like they were really, really upset. Right. Um but if they're in Tijuana, right. it's, it's like they don't exist. Yeah. And and just to kind of go into the weeds on this a little bit, uh, Tijuana is, I mean, I haven't been there in several months, but it the infrastructure there uh, for shelters is like actually kind of OK, relatively. Juarez has been kind of a mess, but there's actually some attention there. The Mexican state of Tamaulipas, which is across the border from the Rio Grande Valley or from like the, the southernmost part of the Rio Grande Valley, uh, the Mexican government initially said they weren't going to accept any returns there because it's so dangerous. And, you know, I was there over the weekend and there's literally you cross the bridge into Matamoros and there's a camp of several hundred people just there, just like on the grounds of the uh building where the Mexican Migration Agency processes people for return because it's too dangerous to go anywhere else. And it's wild that we have essentially a refugee camp right across the border from the U.S. And even U.S. immigration or immigration adjacent officials don't appear to acknowledge it. Like another reporter who was there the same weekend I was there was crossing back. And when they said that they were uh, reporting on the migrants in Matamoros. The response was, oh, there are still a lot of them down there. Um, yesterday in one of the hearings for people who had been returned under MPP, the immigration judge asked the ICE attorney whether Mexico was guaranteeing housing for people. And the ICE attorney said they didn't know. Like, even among the people who are implementing this policy on the U.S. side, because it's not happening on U.S. soil, there is there. You're right. It is an out of sight, out of mind problem. It, it I think that you're exactly right, Matt, that it's a combination of not happening on U.S. soil and not happening in U.S. custody. I think that this has really exposed the limits of cosmopolitan sympathy among right. the hashtag resistance. I I also think that there's a sentiment that like when, you know, when we talk about the um, detention facilities, there's a lot of like, well, Obama did this too. And I think that that was such a striking moment because I think that there's very much of a sense that you saw when kids in cages images started coming out that 
yes, Obama did it too, but we didn't know about it. And now, like, I think that there's a sense of, like, if we're going to do this, it needs to be done in a way that the American people don't have to see it. And I think that that's also something, I mean, I, you know, this is a separate show and something that I would just scream about it about anyone. But when the Trump administration talks about its quote-unquote concerns with homelessness. They are not concerned with homeless Americans. They are concerned that people can see homeless Americans and would really prefer that you couldn't so that you could walk around and not see poor families living in tents under underpasses because that makes things look bad. There is a sense, and I I think Matt's correct, that the idea of out of sight, out of mind is a very important and potent political weapon. Yeah, I I think the other thing going on here is that the Trump administration, after having kind of launched some fairly blunt efforts to expand executive power over immigration enforcement in ways that did get struck down or at least, you know, narrowed substantially by the courts, has started finding some places in the Immigration and Nationality Act that aren't as clear cut and that do allow them to take more authority than Congress may have necessarily anticipated. And one of those is the provision under which they're doing this Remain in Mexico policy, which is a provision that, like, is unclearly written, but appears to give them authority to send anybody with like whose legal status is still being or whose eligibility for relief is still being determined back to a contiguous country if they cross through through it to wait for the disposition of their case. Whether that applies to asylum seekers is like a grammatical problem in the law, essentially. Um, But this is a provision that like no one had that hadn't been used in the 20 some odd years that it existed that no one really had paid much attention to and that the administration has turned into this massive program. And the other thing that they've kind of exploited is the safe third country agreement provision, which allows the U.S. to sign a bilateral or multilateral agreement that just allows them to start denying asylum seekers en masse, which, yes, in theory, the regulations require certain certifications that the country actually will keep people safe from persecution, but they require those those certifications by the executive branch. And between that and this 235B2C remain in Mexico policy, the administration has found ways to kind of extraterritorialize an asylum seeker population without congressional oversight or that much judicial ability to limit. I also think, right, fundamentally, this is all, I I think, like, exposed flaws in the, like, dual overlapping frameworks of trying to do cosmopolitanism through technical legalisms and with trying to do immigration policy on the basis of purely neutral, benevolent cosmopolitanism. Politanism, mm, right? Interesting. That, that, like, you know, because one of it, right, is that, like, look, there's a body of asylum law, right, that exists. It's longstanding. Uh, it, it has its meanings. Uh, but clearly, right, the 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 mental image of the asylum seeker in, in this kind of thing is either a one-off person fleeing for you know, reasons that that relate to them or some kind of acute crisis that occurs right in the vicinity of your country, right? But there's a body of law, right? It's a bureaucratic process. It's built up and it had come to be the case that you could fly from Africa to Brazil, then make your way from Brazil through South America, through Central America, through Mexico to the United States border. And When asylum law was created, that was not the kind of sequence of events that was envisioned, right? But people who believe in cosmopolitan values, like, wanted to hang their hats, our hats, frankly, like, on asylum because you want to help people, right? But the problem with all of this is that, like, it's very easy to generate cosmopolitan sympathy to a person in U.S. custody because the people holding them in U.S. custody are acting in our names. And so if they are treating other human beings poorly, you know, there you go. But we know, right, I mean, those of us who are knowledgeable about the world, there are millions of people living in terribly bleak conditions in Haiti, in Burma, in all around the world, right? And nobody... I think, in the United States would actually be that thrilled with um, 
tens of millions of them materializing at the U.S.-Mexico border suddenly, right? And we saw a big political movement against Trump and against the cruelty of child detention, but certainly not a political movement for, like, totally unrestricted immigration, right? And you continue not to, really, even though, despite Republican rhetoric and stuff like that, there's no no movement from Democrats. The actual real deal open borders people, there, there aren't that many of them. And I say this as someone who would very much favor an extremely loose sense of asylum, because I think that there are, like, the idea of how we construct what people can receive asylum for, especially with relation to victims of domestic violence, because technically victims of domestic violence are not victims of political violence that's aimed at people like them. It's just violence aimed at them or LGBT people, especially because it could be constructed as this is just another way of Trump proving that the cruelty is the point, um, to borrow a line from our friend Adam Serwer. But I think that there is a sense that now it's not happening here. It's like, ah, the cruelty is someone else's point now. Right. And it it calls for, it does, I think, it calls for some kind of thinking about, like, what is it that, like, people who are on the left, who are cosmopolitan-minded, like, what do we want to see? out of an immigration system and a process that I think is a little less a, a lot of like Democratic Party immigration policy development right now is very uh, I feel like dominated by um, immigration lawyers which makes sense <laughs> yes. in some ways because immigration lawyers obviously know a lot about immigration law but a lot of what they are trying to do because they're lawyers is identify sort of specific provisions in the vast web of immigration law where they can generate that are like big levers, Mm -hmm. you know? So, But like that's what lawyers do, right? They try to make little tweaks that actually have big consequences. But part of what you need, right, because you see that like the resistance against Trump was very potent and then it was nothing, right? And that's that's because there's a a question of like moral vision, right? Not of like going through the back door, but of like, like what are – when we say this is not who we are as a country, mm-hmm. when people say that, like, who are we as a country then, right? Yeah. Like, like what, what what do we want out of this, right? What, what do we want out of the world? What statement are we trying to make? And when I saw uh, Democrats talking about immigration over the last couple of debates, you know, it was interestingly only Andrew Yang who I thought, like, really tried to answer that question. Um, and he gave a question that was different from the humanitarian immigration question, right? I mean, he gave a sort of economic development question, right? And he talked about, you know, his parents coming from, you know, having no floor, uh, peanut farmers in Asia. And, you know, he's founding businesses and he's running for president. And he talked about uh, the large proportion of of, um, immigrants among founders of American startups and and things like that. And it was, you know, it, it wasn't an answer to this asylum question, but it was an answer to the the question, like, not just like, why does Donald Trump make me feel icky? But like, what am I trying to say about yes. this? And and you don't really hear it from other people, even though it's so close to the like emotional center, not just of Trump's politics, but of responses to Trump. I think, though, one of the biggest challenges facing kind of institutional conservatism is that people in general before 2016, 2015, within kind of establishment conservatism, and that I mean like Heritage Foundation, AEI, that kind of thing. They thought they were all on board with the Andrew Yang style of talking about immigration, that immigrants come here, they benefit the economy, they are engines of the American economy and contribute to the tapestry of America by blending together in a majestic soup, but is the American experience. And then it turned out People didn't really feel that way. And so that's you're now starting to see a host of people. There's been a lot of discussion among conservatives of kind of two specific writers, David French and Sarab Amari, who are talking about kind of what is the future of conservatism looking like. And there was a piece in The Federalist that talked about um, here are things that America can do to be better for Christians, because that's apparently a concern for some Christians. Um, But one of them was like, you know, welcome immigrants, because immigrants tend to be more conservative, and they tend to be more religious, and that's better for America more broadly. And then you see uh, Michelle Malkin, who's a far-ish right 
right-leaning conservative writer who's just released a book about how the Catholic Church is trying to foment the browning of America. And she and Sebastian Gorka, who is also an immigrant of a different kind, and you're just talking about how the United Nations is trying to make America browner. And you see this, and part of something that Trump rightly picked up on is that while elite conservatism really valued the concept of immigration, specifically legal immigration, as a boon to America, there are a host of people who think of themselves as being conservatives who do not. You start seeing um, immigration restrictionists who are like, no, 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 we weren't just talking about so-called illegal immigration or undocumented immigrants. We mean all immigration. So I think that that's a, a fascinating element of this because even the Andrews Yang of the world who make the argument that my parents came here and worked hard and now I've benefited and I, this country and I'm giving back, that argument doesn't work on immigration restrictionists who think that like, no, the thing that should have happened is that you should have never been allowed to come here and someone else, preferably someone who is native-born or native-born as we conceive of it should have been able to start those companies. And so I think that there's this interesting construct within conservatism about, you know, one of the things about 2016 is that a lot of elite conservatives thought everyone agreed and with what they were talking about, and then you find out that's not true. And I'm, I'm interested in how that structure works when you are hear someone like Andrew Yang or others making the, the case for immigration more broadly and then that case doesn't work the same way it used to. Yeah, I mean, one of the corollaries of this kind of broadly restrictionist viewpoint, as it r refers to refugee flows in particular, is the idea that there should be regional responses to asylum crises, right? That there isn't a global refugee crisis, that there are several regional refugee crises, and that it's the responsibility of neighboring countries to take this up. And often this is kind of implicitly grounded in the idea of cultural similarity, right? That like it's easier for hmm. Mexico to absorb Central Americans than it would be for the U.S. to do so. Or it's easier for, you know, neighboring Arab countries to absorb Syrian refugees than it is for Europe to do so, which like has a bunch of assumptions that should themselves be unpacked. But among them is the idea that, of course, Mexico and Central Mexico and Guatemala, Mexico and Honduras are cu culturally similar, and therefore Hondurans will be welcomed with open arms in which Mexico. Is, which is a huge news it to many people. Not. I, I have actually a different interpretation of that. Oh, I, I mean, that is, I think that there are different, like, that is definitely a strain that gets expressed. Yeah. But. So, I mean, but I think part of it, right, is that the original post-World War II migration framework, it, it like, canonizes the idea that wanting to move to another country because you can uh, make a better life for yourself there is like fundamentally illegitimate. Right. But that wanting to move to another country because you are in imminent danger for your life is not just legitimate, but like is a trump card against other aspects of national policy, right? So that sets up like a really harsh, crude dichotomy when like real world people, right? Like if I, I remember like talking to my great grandparents about like why they left czarist Russia, mm -hmm. right? And like I do not think that their explanations of this made a like really hard and fast distinction between Russia was poor, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in general, there were sometimes pogroms that killed people. You know, like yep. it was all of the things, right? And like we all get that, right? right? And like certainly one of the reasons why they came to America Right. If they were going to bother to leave their home villages and go on a, like an arduous, difficult journey, they wanted to come to the United States because they'd heard the United States was like a good place to live. Right. Right. That's why they weren't trying to go to Portugal. But the idea that you should go to the neighboring country, right, it inhabits that dichotomous framework, right? That if genuinely the only consideration is an imminent threat to your life stemming from the government uh, of the state that you're fleeing, right? That it's like you hop across the border and it's like, good news, now you're in Lebanon, right? right. Whereas the desire to come to America exhibits that you have the allegedly illegitimate purpose of making a better life for yourself and your family because America is like a rich you know, like overall good place to live it, compared to Tajikistan or, or, or right. whatever. Of, of course, it also this, gets this into does tie into the whole like the persecutor has to be the state thing. Whereas, right. as Jane pointed out earlier, if you're fleeing domestic violence because your government is 
as the term exists in asylum law, unwilling or unable to protect you, yeah. then if yeah, you flee to another country that also does is, not have a government yeah. that is able or willing to protect you, your, you know, your abuser, your persecutor could come with you. But like that's this gets back to, you know, Jane's point about the ability of the 20th century asylum law framework to survive the 21st century, which is a personal hobby horse of mine. And so I will get off it. And allow us to talk about a white paper. Excellent. Let's do it. Let's take the break. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, our uh, paper for you today is by um, Owen Thompson. It is titled School Desegregation and Black Teacher Employment. It is about the impact of school desegregation on the employment of black teachers. Uh, this is a question, I'll admit, it never really occurred to me to think about. Uh, it's, but-, but it's actually something that comes up um, in, there was an interesting piece in The Atlantic uh, two weeks ago, a week ago, time is relative, about... Um, African-American athletes and historically black colleges and universities. Mm. And one of the things that's interesting when people um, talk about like kind of African-American forebears in the United States is that the arguments that they were having among themselves in the 40s, 50s and 60s were just as interesting as the arguments they were putting forth to predominantly white audiences. And among them, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, the legendary writer, was strongly opposed to the concept of Brown versus Board of Education for many reasons. But among them was the idea that in a hypothetical good segregated environment that would benefit African-American teachers and African-American administrators. And you could essentially build a African-American biosphere that would benefit the people within it and would keep African-Americans going to black colleges, benefit Tuskegee and Prairie View and a host and Howard and a host of other HBCUs. And so, I, you know, seeing the data, which we can get into, it's in, it's a little bit, it's part of that original argument, which is, you know, I know that when, um, during the most recent Democratic debate, the concept of HBCUs came up. And uh, Robbie Suave, who writes at Reason, who's someone I know pretty well, he asked, you know, like, why are we still encouraging people to go to HBCUs? And I'm like, that's a 15,000 word essay on that subject. But I think the, in, you know, how desegregation impacts African-American teachers is a part of this larger story. Right. So so how did desegregation impact African-American teachers? Uh, so he finds, you know, looking back at, at length census data, there's about a 32 percent decline in the number of African-American teachers employed in the U.S. South. Uh, he finds that those teachers, they do not move into new, better career opportunities that were opened up by the process of desegregation. They move into lower skilled, lower paid work than they'd been in previously. They were- or they move out of the South. Yes. And, and then also, they are not replaced by like a new cadre of better teachers. They are replaced by a new cadre of less experienced white teachers. I mean, we don't know that much about their effectiveness. But to a, to a first degree, what happened was, was that as Southern jurisdictions had to implement segregation, desegregation, they took the opportunity to lay off a large share of the black teaching workforce and replace them with less experienced white teachers. Um, basically turning uh i mean i don't know there, there, there's there's a lot you could say about this um there are some 
parallel type situations, right? So I live near uh, U Street in in Washington, which was kind of the um, main street of the African-American part of the segregated city. And so desegregation hurt a lot of Black-owned businesses there. It's tough luck that, like, if you built a business on the back of, like, making the best out of segregation and then you lose it because of desegregation, but that's people having more options. But critically, that's, like, not what happened here, right? He says that there was a fairly, you know, deliberate public policy effort to sort of make lemonade out of lemons, I mean, from the standpoint of, like, white supremacist state legislatures, right? But it's, it's a different thing from, like, the opening up of options, having some costs for a small number of relatively privileged African Americans. It's the desegregation orders were limited in what exactly they ordered you to do. So they sort of took the opportunity to just fire a bunch of black teachers for no real reason. Right. And what I really appreciate about this paper is they didn't have to go to lengths to establish that. And they did anyway. Right. It would be very easy to write this paper based on the census data and say, oh, look, it turns out that this is a consequence of school integration. But instead, what they do is they explicitly say, look, we're not saying that this was some kind of unintended consequence or invisible hand kind of thing. We're saying that it was the result of public policy choices. And secondly, to use the historical record to show not only that it was the result of choices, but that it wasn't inevitable and was recognized as being a problem at the time. There's like a specific kind of court case subsequent to Brown versus Board of Ed in which teachers are trying to, black teachers are trying to say, hey, all of us got fired. No white teachers got fired in our community. Surely this is contrary to the spirit of Brown. And the court said, eh, actually, no, this is fine. And so that kind using the historical record to supplement the quali- the quantitative analysis ends up making the case much more persuasively than a standard correlational paper that just goes, here are several different mechanisms right. that, that could theoretically explain this. The other point that I wanted to make, because like, it can seem a little bit counterintuitive that in integrating schools, you can just fire a bunch of teachers. Um, there, the argument that the authors make here is that that was made possible, well, A, by like recruiting teachers to replace them, but also because in addition to just kind of consolidating districts, meaning that you had some efficiencies, white students were disenrolling. And this is part of the kind of massive resistance leading into uh, white flight suburbanization and increased use of private schools. Like Mm -hmm. when there are fewer white students and more black students in classrooms, you don't need as many teachers to support them. So instead of having white kids under white teachers and black kids under black teachers, you have black kids under white teachers being the predominant mode of public schooling in the United States. Yeah, this is interesting to me. We we picked this paper before this happened, but there were some people arguing about the sort of overall legacy of judicial review in, in the United States, which is a, a bigger topic than a than a white paper section. But he, this history shows some of the difference between a court led process and a legislative process, right? Because one of the things that's nice about a legislative process, right, is that. African-American teachers being far and away the largest block of African-American professionals at the time would naturally like were people who were like on the radar of the civil rights movement. Right. And in a like coalitional process, a legislative process where you have hearings and you have a lot of horse trading and blah, 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 blah. It seems like, you know, it's hard to get major legislation passed. But this is also the kind of thing that you think about. Right. It's like, well, what are we going to do about this situation? Whereas in a legal framework where you put down this ruling, like it's very like it's it's very high minded. It taps into basic values about equality. But it has in the nature of a judicial ruling, it's like particular point. Right. Which is to say that segregating the children has a stigmatizing effect inherently and that that violates equal protection under the laws. So you have to not do it. Go forth. Right. Right. And a lot of stuff <laughs> gets like left out on the on the 
cutting room because this is not what judges do, right? They don't sit down with interest groups and people who have these different complaints and are like, hey, like I think the segregated system is really shitty and unfair, but also I like having a job or like I don't have a problem. I mean, they cite testimony from the original Brown plaintiffs who were like, we don't have a problem with our teachers, right? Right, But that's not how... Like, right. it's not how courts work. It's like, ultimately, the court has to make make this ruling on, like, the high question of principle and not think about how do you organize the transition. And um, it's like, it's, it's really quite bad. I, I yeah. feel like this is especially a problem when we're talking about the civil rights era because go forth isn't just go forth. It's we understand there's going to be subsequent litigation, but we trust that the lower courts are going to use the opinion we've just written to work out the details. The lower courts are, of course, regionalized. And so it was never likely that the Fifth Circuit was going to interpret Brown the same way that, you know, the Second Circuit or the Ninth Circuit would. And so you end up having a situation in which the region where the Supreme Court is envisioning the most rigorous enforcement of this are exactly the actors who have the strongest incentive to water that decision down. Right, which is why you're still seeing schools being forced to desegregate now. Granted, that's happening also in California. Um, yeah, no, which is I, an important point to make. <laughs> the good news, bad news, and I think we've talked about this in the context yeah. of voting rights, is that uh, civil rights issues have become nationalized to the point that arguably there isn't going to be, you know, arguably yeah. there are regions throughout the country where more rigorous enforcement would be a welcome thing. The last thing to say about this is that um, there's some research, and I'll, I'll throw some in, in the show notes, although it might be worth a paper segment of its of its own, that, you know, um, the uh, racial match between students and teachers is uh, actually important, um, you know, to student outcomes, as well as sort of it being unfair to teachers to end up losing their jobs. It's not um, it's not the best thing for African-American students to go to schools where all the authority figures are white um, for, you know, a, a whole variety of reasons. If we were trying to come up with like a technically sound desegregation strategy, like this is really not what you would do. Right. As someone who attended pretty much all white schools their entire life. It's interesting because I think that there's been there has been research specifically. Um, I've seen this with regard to uh, male teachers with how boys are taught. But it, it w- it's interesting to get again into the research of how race matching, which would be an interesting challenge for me. But, uh, you know, how that works in terms of f- student success and also like how one would foment that. Yeah, it, it it's complicated. So so this has been another progressive shouldn't rely on the courts episode of the weeds. Never. <laughs> Never courts. Um, okay, so with that, uh, <laughs> thanks guys. Uh, thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld and the weeds will return on Friday.